What's up? My name is Josiah Haken. I've been working with homeless folks for over a decade. I'm convinced one of the main reasons we have not been able to solve the homelessness crisis in the United States of America is because we fundamentally don't understand why it happens or what can be done about it. In this podcast, I interview friends of mine who have experienced homelessness firsthand, experts who have dedicated years of their lives providing services and resources to the unhoused community, as well as theologians and advocates who can help us rethink the issue altogether. In case you haven't heard, I'm also releasing a book on July 29th called Neighbors with No Doors, The Truth About Homelessness and How You Can Make a Difference. Because I believe that people with good intentions who don't know what to do often end up doing nothing at all. I do not expect you to agree with me or my guests on every opinion that is shared on this podcast or in my book. But my hope is that the conversation alone will inspire and equip you to engage your homeless neighbors with confidence and compassion. Welcome to the Neighbors with No Doors podcast. All right. I think we are recording. Lovely. I have Greg Paul with me on today's episode of the Neighbors with No Doors podcast. I can't tell you how excited I am to have this conversation. Um, I was introduced to Greg's work um, primarily through his books, The 20 Piece Shuffle um, and God in the Alley. Um, that Greg wrote and about his work in Toronto. And I can't wait to hear more about that. Um, so welcome, Greg. Thank you for joining me on this podcast, man. That's great to be here. And thank you for the important stuff you're doing in New York. So just right off the top, as you look back on, on sort of your life, what was your first experience or, or introduction to the reality uh, of homelessness? The reality that people, brothers and sisters, fellow human beings, do not have a place to live. Yeah. You know, I think like lots of people, I encountered it before I really recognized what it was. I grew up in a suburb of Toronto. Toronto's Canada's largest city has a similar kind of vibe and place in the, in the national zeitgeist as, as New York would have in the U.S. And, um, and I grew up in a suburb, a very wealthy, secure home, but I was always fascinated with the downtown core. So as a kid, I would go down and hang out downtown and, and I had a buddy and he and I would go out, we'd hang, hang out downtown all night long. And so we would, you know, we would see people who look sort of mysterious to us and on the edge of things and they really couldn't decode it. We had no frame of reference for understanding what homelessness was. I get involved in doing some some outreach. I grew up in a very fundamentalist kind of church. So we were those guys who stood in the street corner and preached uh, years ago, um, and w- which, you know, wasn't my favorite thing. I would say I certainly did it. But what I did love was was while other people were doing that was hanging out in the crowd and talking to people. And and on a couple of occasions, at least, I took people home with me, <laughs> uh, which you know, my parents were very straightforward, hardworking, you know, straight up fundamentalist people. So when I brought home a man who, uh, as it turns out, was um, was a gay man and was, was hustling to make a living, um, or another guy who was actually uh, uh, in from the U.S. and who claimed to have had an operation, was homeless and needed X number of dollars to get back home again, um, I really 
I was completely naive about this. Um, and my parents, of course, were not. They, they understood what was going on, but they were great about it, uh, which, was, which was really wonderful. They were really, really supportive, didn't tell me, don't do ever, ever do that again. We're very helpful. And I think what happened for me was um, the, the inner city, to me, it kind of put a hook in me, you know? Yeah. Um, there was something addictive about it, something really intriguing, and partly because I could not decode what I was seeing. It was like a foreign culture. Yeah. Um, and then I got involved with, uh, as an outreach thing, got involved with a band playing in bars and in the downtown core years ago, um, playing rhythm and blues and blues in, in clubs in the downtown core of Toronto. And that wasn't really a connection to homeless people per se, but it was certainly a connection to people who were on the outside of things. Yeah. You know, the people who made that their living room. I'm not saying that everybody who goes to a bar to listen to blues is, is on the outside of things, but, but the people that you saw week by week by week, and you saw them in the same joints all the time, you, you began to realize, well, this is their living room this is their church it's it's what they have it's their society and and out of that um uh a community named sanctuary was born playing with the guys in the band and it's it's kind of a real shaggy dog story so i won't get into it you can you can read the story if you want one of the books but um we ended up playing in bars at night and i would hang out on the street during the day i was commissioned as a missionary from a middle-class suburban church to go do that, which was, again, a pretty conservative evangelical group commissioned me to go play blues in bars and hang out in the streets with what turned out to be quite a cross-section of, of the rounders of the downtown core. And that included, you know, women who were working in sex work. It included, yeah. um, and remember now, we're going back to the early 90s. It was a different deal then. It included uh, what at the time was one of the largest gay, lesbian, bi uh, communities in the world. It included um, a, a bunch of people who were, at, at the time, would have been denoted as, as transsexual people, transgender people we would call now, because Toronto had a program, um, a medical program for people that they could access. So, so people who were all on the margin and a great many of those people were moving in and out of homelessness. And of course, a, a huge number of them were, were people who were long-term rooted in homelessness. Yeah. High percentage of those people in Canada are uh, indigenous folks. So mm -hmm. maybe 25% of our, our street population would be indigenous people. So for the first time I was encountering people who were indigenous um, wow. and, and learning some of their backstory. You know, this is long before the horrors of the residential school system became yeah. public knowledge. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, I was beginning to hear the stories that, that, that some of these men and women had, had endured. So um, uh, I was commissioned uh, to, to begin to do that in, uh, in March of 1992, so 30 years ago now. And, and how, was, how old were you when, you, when that all started? Yeah, so I was 33 when I was commissioned to do that. I was in my teens when I started doing the kind of street preaching and outreach sort of stuff in my 20s with the band. And the band continued until just a few years ago. We had a, okay. like a 35-year run with the band. Um, so, um, so, you know, at 33, I was married and had four young kids, been commissioned to go do this in the downtown core really, despite the fact that I've been hanging out in the streets for some years already, really didn't know what I was doing. And, and I think it wasn't 
until I started to do that day by day by day that I really understood what it meant to be connected to people who were homeless in the deepest sense of the word. Um, and it was that personal human connection, you know, individual to individual and learning, sharing our stories or personal stories and hanging out day by day that, that, so, so when you, you know, this is a long, long answer to your question, no, but when great. you ask, what was your first connection with homeless people? I'm not sure where I, I would, you know, place the marker. Yeah. In that. But, but I think it would probably be, uh, you know, six months after I started actually hanging out every day in the yeah. downtown core and finally began to seep in just how different this was for people who were truly homeless. And, and how did that transition go? I mean, I know the band you mentioned and, and sort of how that became, you know, turned into Sanctuary. And tell us a little bit about that, about how you transitioned from, you know, because I know there's a lot, I know, I know personally, I know some people who started out in similar ways, just kind of going into the street, you know, just kind of making friends, you know, bumming mm-hmm. a cigarette and chatting with somebody on the sidewalk. And, and that's, but there's a transition point, I think, from that to, a more intentional and strategic uh, approach to engaging with with this population and trying to do something collectively um, in response to, to to those relationships. So, how did that transition happen for you in terms of moving from something you just kind of were doing on the side, or yeah. something you were doing sort of in your own time, or even as a commissioned missionary, but you actually brought in other people and started to form sort of an organizational response to to what you were experiencing. Well, I'd like to be able to say that it was because of my great uh, strategic thinking ability. But honestly, I think an awful lot of this was was almost happenstance uh, in the sense that even, uh, you know, I had a sense, a personal sense of calling. Uh, let's mm. start there. I really clearly a sense that God was calling me to do something. And and um, I'd had that since I was a kid. And it, was, it wasn't until I really began to connect with stuff at street level and stuff with the band that I thought, oh, I finally know what it is. I'm mm-hmm. not interested in being a pastor in a church in a normal situation. Mm-hmm. I'm not interested in going to a foreign country and trying to be a, a missionary or being an itinerant teacher, preacher, that sort of stuff. Um, but this stuff put a hook in me, as I said. And and so I was fortunate in a number of ways. One was that the church that I that I was part of could see this and trust it and, and mm-hmm. commission me to go do it. Um, and that I was also that I was surrounded by a handful of people. So the band, for starters, there was in particular at that time in those early days, there was two other guys, a guy named uh, Les Brown, who was the drummer, and um, and Danny Robbins, who was a guitar player, and uh, and later uh, bass player joined us, Doug. Um, and and those guys created kind of a, if you like, a, a small nucleus of, of uh, support and care and participation and around because we were going out and playing in the band there was and this was not being done at the time i yeah. mean lots of other bands in other places have done it but but in toronto we didn't know anybody else who was doing this as a means of outreach there were a handful of of christian people who started to, to go with us to those bars and it became a sort of a movable uh, spiritual feast, if you like, um, mm-hmm. and feast might be a generous way to express it, but, um, <laughs> but those people created a nucleus of, of kind of a sense of belonging and community. And then, um, 
so I was at the same time I was going and preaching at this old church, this dying church in the downtown core. And uh, they were looking for ways to revitalize. Um, they were all elderly people and only like 20 of them left. Uh, and so that's where I was commissioned to go and work out of. But it was clear mm. that it wasn't about rebooting that church. Yeah. And I, I had to say that to them over and over. This is not about rebooting this church. Wouldn't be fair to you. Wouldn't be fair to the people in the street. You, you know, you're not going to understand each other. Yeah. And eventually, in fact, within less than, I think it's about six months, um, maybe nine months uh, of me starting to work out of there, the old church just packed it in. Mm. But by this point, we were using um, the facilities. They had a kitchen in the basement. We were using the facilities of this old church building and inviting people in for lunch from the street. Um, you know, making a meal together and sitting down and eating. And it started with three or four people and it was mm -hmm. a dozen and, and in it that started to grow. So it was, it was always about being a community. I think, I think if there's one thing that we had clear in our minds was that it, this was not supposed to be a mission in the mm. typical sense of the word or a social service agency. It was supposed to be a functioning community where, where the uh, currency was, a human connection at, at a, you know, some kind of intimate level. So, yeah. um, and, and so when we shared meals together, I mean that we didn't have a group of Christians come in and make a meal and serve it to a bunch of homeless people. Right. W there was me and another guy early on and we would, you know, invite a bunch of people in and we, we'd say, well, let's, you know, let's make some grilled cheese and, you know, open a can of soup or, you know, let's make some spaghetti. And it's been, for a long time, it was basically either of those things, yeah. <laughs> soup, soup yeah. and grilled cheese, or it was a spaghetti. But but we made it together and we shared it together and we sat down together um, as, uh, as people who, uh, as nearly as possible, were equals. You yeah. know, there obviously still a great gap because I went home at night to a, to a house, a place to, to sleep. Um, and that's really the ethos that we've tried to continue, this sense that that we are not, the sanctuary is not about a group of people who have more than they need, providing service to a bunch of people who don't have what they need. Yeah. It's about us sharing our lives together and recognizing that, in fact, I, I do have needs that, that can be fulfilled by people who are poor and homeless and who have nothing material. Yeah. And they have stuff that, that they need that, that I can help supply. So there's a mutuality to it that's really critical. I I just adore that. I mean, because one of the things that really hit me when I, I read the book When Helping Hurts, like early on in my in my journey in terms of working with folks who are in the street. And I remember feeling really sort of convicted that we were an organization uh, at City Relief that was just distributing free stuff to the less fortunate. Um, and what is the dynamic of that power, um, from the person who is being the server versus the person being served and, and how to sort of flatten that curve as much as possible. Um, and one of the things that I remember, it's really stuck. I actually, it's it, this little mantra got stuck in my head, which is, um, that we are not coming to distribute our leftovers to the less fortunate, we're here to break bread with our brothers and sisters. And how do you shift 
that that dynamic and the way I described it, I was saying we need to think communion, not charity. Yes. Um, and we need to figure out a way to 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 facilitate a communion experience. And what I the thought I had was if I go, you know, with a friend to a coffee shop and I buy my friend, can I buy you coffee? I'm not enabling that person's dependency. I'm not like like holding that. I'm I'm truly just trying to do an act of love for a peer, a friend. Uh, and and that's completely normative. That's that's completely common. But the difference is, is if I say I want to buy you a cup of coffee, and then I stand there and watch you drink it. Yeah, uh, absolutely. <laughs> there's a different dynamic that's now. Let me buy you coffee, and then I sit and watch you drink it, and I don't do anything. Like so, what we try, started doing is we started encouraging our volunteers to eat everything we serve. Uh, and there was actually one time I made that that point so so convincingly that one of our volunteers, God bless her, started drinking our hot chocolate uh, that we were serving. And it turns out she was allergic to chocolate. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, why on earth did you drink the hot chocolate if you're allergic to chocolate? And she's like, because you told me. Uh, you could have had somebody's life on your, on your conscience. Exactly. But so I just love, I just love that, that, um, you know, that heart. And I love that. I, I, this is, the dynamic and the, I'm convinced the ethos that it creates yes, is yeah. completely different. Um, well, you know, you, you use the word space. communion and that's such a beautiful expression. It, you know, obviously has a deep religious connotation that we value. Um, but, but it really, it takes things a step beyond the word community, which, which we use interchangeably with the word church in our context, but community even has a, you know, social service, um, meaning uh and a government meaning and uh, a geographical meaning and like it's got uh, layers of, of meaning that that may not really say anything much about the connection between the people who live in a given place but communion indicates that there's something spiritual at the heart of of who we are and mm-hmm. and i think uh, so i think it's a really important word for us um, even if not all of the people who are part of that communion understand that what links us is, is the person of Jesus and the presence of the Holy Spirit, you know. Um, and, and the other word that, that you use that to me is really critical is power. You talked about the power dynamic. And mm-hmm. if, if we're serious about creating um, communities that have communion at the heart of them, then we need to think uh, deeply and act uh, boldly uh, about issues of, of power and the power imbalance. And I think this is what a great many well-intentioned people forget. You know, they, they come and they say, well, I just want to serve. And that sounds so great. But they, what they don't realize is that if they're holding the ladle in a soup line, they're actually holding the instrument of power. Yeah. They're serving, but they're holding the instrument of power. And what's what would be much better is if you could take that ladle and handle it, hand it to somebody who normally would be standing in the soup line. So um, that's a very simple kind of expression of it. But but we, it, w- what is important for us, for those of us who are people of privilege, like you and I are, you know, we have a place to yeah. live. We have food in the, in the, in the fridge. Uh, we're, we have families that surround us. Um, we have respect in the world. We, uh, probably don't worry too much about pay, paying bills at the end of the month. Um, those are, are aspects of tremendous privilege in the world in which we're talking about, and in fact, most of the world. Mm-hmm. And, and if we don't get serious about handing over the power that we have uh, 
then we will not actually be able to enact the kingdom of God that Jesus described. Hmm. Because at the heart of that kingdom are people who are poor. And people who are poor in spirit. That is, they've, their spiritual wealth has been stripped away from them. They're spiritually bankrupt. Uh, they're you know people whose lives are a litany of of loss, people who mourn, uh, people who are meek. By which I'm convinced Jesus doesn't mean people who are humble. He means people who have been shoved out of everywhere, and that's why they're going to inherit the earth. People who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, for justice. You know they're starving and thirsting to death for righteousness, and there's a feast coming. But but if if we see ourselves as the one who have all of that, the ones who have all of that, and we dole it out, then we're not actually understanding the kingdom as Jesus described it. Mm. it it's not me, the you know the former executive director of Sanctuary Ministries of Toronto, who's at the center of the kingdom of God. Yeah, you know, it's my brother Al, who's an indigenous man who's lived on the street for years and has has a, a, a whole bunch of of trauma issues uh, and. Um, and who nobody thinks twice about when they pass him on the street. That's the guy who's at the center of the kingdom of God. That's mm. what Jesus taught us. So the question for us is, is how do we, in a way that's not damaging to the people we want to care for, devolve the power that society has given us to them, mm. to our brothers and sisters who are really at the center of the kingdom of God? Uh, and, and I think that's how we enact the communion that you're talking about. Yeah. No, that's be it's beautiful, and it's and it's we we both like it's really really hard. I mean, I I that's the other thing that I've you know observed is is that especially in nonprofit worlds, right? Like, and I'm I'm going a little off script here, but I, I think it's important that we talk about this element of like of the power dynamics, even from a funding standpoint, and from a um, you know. Uh, you know, a, a dynamic of saying, you know, we're an organization that that wants to help people get connected to services and provide, and we can create this great experience for them. Um, but at the end of the day, we also then need funding from people with power to be able to keep our staffs, you know, housed in the process, and and you know, they take care of their. There's so many dynamics, and then end up, you know, it's so easy for organizations to slip into this uh, sort of, you know, the tail wagging the dog sort of expression, oh, right? Like where all yeah. of a sudden you're in this position where you started out trying to maintain that, that communion heart, that sort of empowerment. And, and then it's, and then you slip, it's just the slip is so easy to a place where now the people you are serving are now a means to the end of keeping your doors open or keeping your services intact yeah. Uh, rather than the other way around, I think a lot of organizations I've seen that have struggled to to remember that the people that they exist for the people they serve, the people they serve don't exist for them. Oh, it's and and the more we slip into a service modality, the harder it is to to remember that. You know, um, it, as long as we're deeply rooted in in relationship, I think it's it's easier to remember mm. that that this is really about my brother who has nothing, it's not about me who has more than he needs. Um, yeah. And I think, but you're quite right that, that uh, there's a, a corollary dynamic with the people who fund us, you know, wealthy, powerful people who very often have gotten where they've gotten because they're very directive and they, and they want to direct the money and they want to tell you what you should do. 
um, and and so on. So I think it requires in that instance some some boldness. Mm. Uh, you know, by the way, of course, Jesus is the great model for both of these things. Jesus sharing his life with people who are poor and excluded and so on. And you look at the way he interacts with people who are powerful. And he's, he's quite challenging with them. Um, and, and so, you know, I think one of the things, though, that we need to remember in this is that that people who are wealthy uh, actually need what people who are poor have. Mm. They, they need that interaction in their lives on a number of levels. And we need to be, those of us who are in the middle, trying to create a bridge between the, the very wealthy and powerful and people who have nothing. We have a responsibility to remind those, those wealthy people of that. So, um, you know, if we're, we have a guy on our staff whose most of his work is actually uh, working Bay Street, which is Canada's Wall Street. Um, and, and he gets in touch with all sorts of captains of industry. And, and it's not infrequent that, that, you know, he bangs on their door for six months and finally gets through and the, and the person behind the desk wants to write a check and just get him out of the office. Yeah. And, and Jay says to, to those kinds of people, he says, no, 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 we don't want your check yet. We want you to come and visit because we have something that you need. You must come and visit. You must hang out with our people. And you will find something there that you will discover you need in your life. And, and not everybody gets that, but almost everybody gets pitched that line. And they come, and, and often they come frightened. Mm-hmm. Because they're, this is, they're, they're fine walking to the boardroom of a national bank. But coming into a room full of people who are poor and, and hungry and some of them are angry and some of them have psych issues and some of them have addiction issues and almost all of them have trauma issues. Um, it, and it's, it's intimidating for them. We've had people tell us that. So uh, over and over. And, and yet when they come and they stay for half an hour or an hour, they walk out saying, I can't, like, I can't believe it. I can't believe what's going on here. I can't believe that I walked in terrified and I'm going out feeling like this is one of the most amazing experiences of my life. We've, we've heard that kind of thing. Now, not everybody says that, obviously, sure. because lots of people just don't get it. Yeah. But, um, you know, we, we've had um, people who are heads of banks. We've had, we had a, a guy who was a former attorney general of, of Ontario uh, who came and became part of the community because because they realize there's something here that I need. And what they mm. need is human connection. They need the dismantling of the power structures that tell them that they matter because they are powerful, powerful, wealthy, or successful, or all three of those things. And, and um, they need, as, as one friend of mine who is a bank executive said to me years ago, they, they need to discover that. You know, when I come here, he says, nobody cares whether I'm wearing a suit or not. They don't care whether I'm good at my job or not. Uh, they've got no sense, as, as I do, that at some point soon the bank is going to discover I'm not as good as they think I am and they're going to fire me and then what's going to happen? <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, He had all these, these worries. Nobody cares about whether my stock portfolio is tanking, uh, which a lot of people are worried about right now. They're just they're yeah. dealing with me as a human being. Yeah. And, and, and it's a relief for many 
and it's a safe place for many who have to be bulletproof elsewhere in their lives to actually become begin to become vulnerable and yeah. um, that certainly has been my experience i mean you know i i came to this work thinking that i was going to be the presence of christ to a bunch of poor people yeah and and discovered that they were the presence of christ to me and so mm. I often say that I feel that my entire adult life has been one long experience of God stripping away from me my defenses, my assumptions, um, yeah. many of my convictions, and, and and saying to me, you know, it's okay. I love you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and and that message most frequently has been delivered to me by people who uh, who have nothing except the yeah. love that they can offer. Yeah, that's beautiful, and it's it rings, it rings so true to to my experience in terms of, you know, you know the comment I get a lot is, "Wow, you 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 must be very fulfilled," or "This is the work you must you do must be is must be very fulfilling," and um, and I'm like, I I think the answer is yes, um, but not probably not the because of what you think. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, there's this dynamic of once you've experienced again that 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 ability to be transparent that ability to be real and authentic um i remember one time and this is this may even be oversharing but i was like uh i was on the street in near port authority and i was talking to a guy who was telling me about um you know his issues with 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 crack addiction and uh his issues with mental health struggles and uh, and then I, I started telling him about, you know, my issues with lust and my issues with, uh, you know, struggling with, you know, to, to, to take care of my wife. And, uh, and I was struggling with like being a new dad and, and how, you know, that was, you know, I, how I struggled to even want to sometimes go home and, and, and play with my new my newborn baby because I didn't know what to do with it because I'm the youngest yeah. of four and never had a baby before. And my, the first diaper I ever changed was my daughter's. And and so I'm just telling this homeless guy all this stuff. And he looks at me and goes, man, you need to do better. You need to step up. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, don't you know how good you have it? He's yeah, like, yeah. that little baby needs you, man. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah, <laughs> but it, and there was no, but it wasn't like angry or judgmental. He was just, it was purely like just inspirational. Like, come on, yeah. you can yeah. do it. Like, you can be a good dad. Like, you can yeah. be a good husband. Yeah. And um, think of think of the graciousness of saying yeah. that. You know, yeah. he's not saying to you, "Oh, you know, take off." Like, yeah, you have it so easy. I'm not. Don't talk to me. You don't. You don't know anything. He, <laughs> so he kind of met you where you were. And I, I mean, yeah. I've had a gazillion experiences like that also, where I, I'm just astonished by the grace that that people exhibit. You know, yeah. I, I remember one night a few years ago, this little parkette beside Sanctuary, and I was walking through it, and it was dark. It was probably eleven or eleven or midnight, something like that, late late at night. And um, I didn't think about this later, but I realized that for a lot of people walking through the park in the dark, would, would they be afraid of that? But I know all the guys who hang out in the park. So, yeah. afraid. so I'm walking through the park and I see these two figures at the end. And, and I come up to them. There are a couple of, of guys that I know who are homeless. And they're dear brothers. They're both guys that I've known for a long, long time. And 
we chat for a minute, and and then I said, well, I got to go. And they said, well, where are you going? I said, well, I'm going home. Like, that's the most normal thing in the world. Well, they're not going home. They're going to roll up under a bridge somewhere. Yeah. And the one guy looks at me, and he says, it must be nice. That was his comment at first, and and I and I I was that's one of the penny dropped, and I and I you know I've been doing this for years, so I should have known better. But anyway, um, and and I I just said to him, yeah, you know, Ivan, it is, it's really nice. And he put his sort of both hands on my shoulders and looked me right in the eye and said, brother, you go home, and you have a wonderful night, hmm. and sleep well. And you know, hold Maggie tight, and mm. um, and I'll see you tomorrow. And and I went home just astonished by the grace of that, this blessing that I received yeah. from a guy who you know who who knew he knew what I needed mm-hmm. in order to be able to continue to function. He also he knew what I needed in order to be able to be continuing to be present for him, right? Yeah. So, um, but at the same time, he was you know people who who maybe I haven't known as well would often say, "Well, you're going home to your wife and kids, and you got a nice place, and I got to sleep under a bridge tonight," and they they get kind of bitter and angry about it, which is totally understandable. Yeah. But the person who knows me speaks words of blessing, and um, uh, just to me, that's incredibly gracious. Oh, absolutely. And I, yeah. And that reminds me of a, of a woman I, I met once who it was pouring down rain and we were inside this outreach event. And as, and as she was walking out, I, after I had tried to offer all these solutions that didn't work, she was struggling with heroin addiction. She had been, her Medicaid was restricted, so she couldn't get into the hospital that needed to cover the, the insurance that she needed to get the treatment she needed. And so she was, after all the avenues of trying, she was walking back out into the rain and she looked at me and she said, get home safe to me. Jeez. Yeah. yeah. And, and I instinctively said, you too. You too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I remember yeah. like the words I was like, yeah. they came out of my mouth. I'm like, Oh, like oh. you too. And she just smiled and yeah. like, there was, again, no judgment, no bitterness, no, no. like, incredible. You know, yeah. it was, and I, but I felt, I mean, I, that, I'll, that was like 10 years ago and I still remember it viscerally. Yeah. I remember the yeah. feeling of yeah. you too, as she's walking out into the rain. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, you and I could swap stories probably for days. Um, yeah, no doubt. I, I'm wondering about. Tell me about homelessness specifically in Toronto. Um, I'm interested in hearing a couple of things. One would be what has changed, <clears throat> excuse me, what has changed over the last 20 years or when you started out to, to now? Um, what are What is being done by the city or the government, or whatever that, that you've seen that has worked or helped? What is not being done? Um, and or what should be done. And I just, just yeah. want to just give us an idea, give anyone listening an idea of kind of what, what the homelessness crisis looks like in Toronto and, and how it's changed and what's being done about it. Yeah. I mean, crisis usually means something that's come on you suddenly and is, and is a really relatively short duration, but this actually has been getting worse and worse for the entire 30 years that I've been there. 
Uh, Toronto, uh, 30 years ago, was um, a large city. I guess it was probably the largest city in Toronto, in Canada. Montreal was was large as well, but uh, Toronto's really kind of taken off since then. So Toronto's about the size of Chicago. It's three and a half million people or something like that in, in the in the Toronto area, and then we're part of a belt of population that's about five or six million. So certainly not as large as, as New York, but but fairly large and densely populated. And the downtown core of Toronto has, over those years, has been um, immensely developed. So I remember a couple of years ago reading that any at any given time in downtown Toronto, there were 175 cranes, building cranes in the air that were putting up condos. So we have been subject to the plague of, of condominium apartment buildings. Um, you know, which is good in one way because it provides housing, but Toronto is a very attractive international market. So the net effect of all of that is that there's way, way more expensive housing and way less housing that's accessible to people who don't have the resources. So our rooming house stock, for instance, is virtually extinct. Uh, there are rooming houses all over the city. 30 years ago, there's literally in the city maybe half a dozen actual mm. rooming houses. Um, and, and they're small ones. Um, and, and at the same time, the government trend has been to diminish rather than to increase supports, I would say. So, um, Addiction services, for instance, uh, 25 years ago, there were a number of um, addiction programs of you know three to six months that you could send people to. Uh, there might be a week waiting list, but you could get them into a a detox center for for the for the run up to that. And now there's simply nothing. It's not not that there's a long waiting list that unless you're an Aboriginal person and willing to go several hours north of the city. Or you're able to pay, um, you know, ten thousand, twenty thousand uh, dollars, or thirty thousand dollars for a three-week stay. Um, there's nothing. There's nothing available. Almost. A couple of Salvation Army programs would be the extent of it, but they're good programs. But but there's no space. So, so we have seen a burgeoning of people who are homeless. Um, there have been a number of kind of half-hearted attempts to to house people. Uh, a mayor, um, several mayors back, started a program called Streets to Homes that took people straight off the street and put them into housing. And initially that was quite good, but but then um, we re- totally ran out of housing stock. And successive administrations have not been interested in, in giving that much more than lip service. Hmm. Our subsidized housing stock has diminished as well. So there's like a 10-year wait list if you're going to try to get into into uh, city housing. Um, and so there's this immense gap, a growing gap between people who have money and people don't. And at the same time, we've been overtaken by successive waves of, of um, unsafe drug supply. So it, it really, for years, Toronto was a place where the main drugs would have been cocaine and, and alcohol, crack cocaine and alcohol, uh, most cities back in the in the 90s also had an undercurrent of heroin more typical on the west coast than where we are um and and then uh you know we moved from 
straight cocaine to, to crack and crack was a different level of drug. And then, then it was crystal meth and that was even worse. Um, and then from crystal meth now it's, um, toxic drug supplies that usually based around fentanyl and they've got a pile of other stuff in, in them as well. And, um, and they're not only are they toxic, they're lethal. So, um, we have a provincial government, which would be like your state government, uh, that the, almost the first thing they did when they, they came in was they dismantled the funding for overdose prevention sites that mm-hmm. had been grown up from grassroots stuff, medical people and social workers volunteering their time. Um, and all they were asking the government funding for was was the equipment to be able to to deal with people who are having overdoses. So using um, uh, various kinds of, of um, inhibitors for, for drug, mm-hmm. drug overdose. Um, so um, what, what we've had then is an epidemic of death and destruction. So yeah. tomorrow night, as you and I speak, our sanctuary community, which is not large, will, um, will host a... Uh, um, going to say a celebration we don't even try to be a celebration of life honestly it's it's a time for grief and lament mm-hmm. uh, to remember 37 people who are members of our community who have died in the past a year and a half hmm. um, that's not all of the homeless people in toronto that's just the members of our little community yeah. and the people that we know well and um i have a a book that I that I started keeping a couple of years ago as kind of a therapy thing for myself uh, and you know per- personal friends people that I could remember enough to put their names down and, and remember their stories uh, like my, my own experience is, is up around 150 people mm. and, and and I haven't been there during the pandemic stuff over the last couple of years because of all of that so it's tremendous trauma for me and for other staff people um, and that's meant I've, I've had to step away from day-to-day stuff. I, I, I have huge PTSD uh, responses when, when I'm encountered, I encounter that sort of thing. So what is the city doing? The city's doing almost nothing. Mm. Um, during the pandemic, there was a move to, to try to house people, uh, and they put them in buildings that were awaiting demolition, um, they put them in hotels in some instances that uh, were shut down because of the pandemic, but it was all very temporary. Yeah. And, and they talked about plans to move people into permanent housing. Well, they haven't. Uh, our folks then began to camp in, in parks because they had nowhere else to go. They literally yeah. had nowhere else to go. And camping together in a park was safer than being in a ravine or something. And, yeah. and because outreach People could be there, and our, our people resuscitated people every day. Mm. They resuscitated people who'd had overdoses because of unsafe drug supply. Um, and the city sent uh, riot troops in to, to clear the encampments. So um, our province and our city government have both been, frankly, abysmal mm-hmm. in this regard. Um, and uh, to be honest, there's nothing constructive that I can, or very little constructive that I can see on the horizon. Yeah. There have been a couple of small projects. There are, there are a few of our city councillors who who keep banging the drum for this sort of thing. Um, 
but we are so far behind in this mm. that it's hard to see a way forward. And, uh, you know, the, the pandemic has made things that much worse, right? Yeah. When you, you know as well as I do that when people get desperate or they feel abandoned, if they already have an inclination to, to substance abuse, then that gets worse. Absolutely. And when the drug supply is, is as uh, dangerous as it is right now, it means an awful yeah. lot of death. So I wish I could say something positive uh, about it. Um, there, really, there's, there are very, very few concrete measures that I could point to and say, well, the government's doing this or yeah. that. No, I, 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 and I think there's, from my observation of a lot of, you know, governments and, and, and politicians and things is that there is this, you know, for right now, we have a new mayor in New York um, who just took over um, a couple months ago. And, and he, he seems to be trying to have his cake and eat it too, as the expression goes, he's, he's trying to talk about how he wants to increase housing supply, but, but the housing supply will take an incredible amount of time and effort and, and yeah. just backlash and bureaucracy. And it's just not, but he's also trying to respond to the fear that the housed community are feeling yeah. about the increased visibility of homelessness in their city. Cause that's the other thing I've in New York, I'm sure Toronto is similar in that when the pandemic hit, everyone who could get out of the city likely did, or at least bunkered yeah. down. Yeah. Um, but the only so the only people left were the homeless folks, um, yeah. and so like all of a sudden they weren't able to blend in to the crowds anymore and to the yeah. tourists and to the, like so they just stuck out they had nowhere to go and so all of a sudden the just the visibility of them uh, increased and so then people yeah. got fra- afraid and scared because of all the stigma and and then there's like this. Um, a lot of hostility I, I'm observing a lot of hostility, increased hostility between the housed and the unhoused communities because of the level of desperation and, and fear and, and sort of collective anxiety that everyone's sort of going through um, and the trauma that you mentioned. So yeah, yeah it's really, it's really quite messy. Um, oh, right it's very messy. You know, I, I, I would say um, they're, they're just like you're describing, there's a lot of nimbyism, you know, not in my backyard stuff yeah. here in, in Toronto as well for those few projects that, that do try to get off the ground. The other thing that, that happens is, um, you know, when the government starts to talk about affordable housing, they're going to create affordable housing. We've learned that the question to ask is affordable for who? Yeah. Because when they talk about affordable housing, typically what they mean is something that's that's within the market range, which is unaffordable not only for, for homeless folks, but it's increasingly un, unaffordable for blue-collar people. Yeah. Um, or or people who are working closer to minimum wage. It's just not affordable at all. So, yeah. um, so they, you know, that's the have your cake and eat it too thing. Well, yeah. we're going to do affordable housing. And and most people who are not politically aware and who are housed, but but also care about people who are poor and homeless, sure. they look at that, oh, good, finally the government's doing something. Well, yeah. maybe not. Look a little yeah. closer. Yeah. Uh, now, I would, I would say that our experience has been that um, neighbors are more often than not supportive. Mm-hmm. I think in, you know there's a handful of very uh, vocal, loud folks who are freaked out by seeing poor people and yeah. and who get frightened and they they can cause a stink. Um, 
But in the main, I would say that the vast majority of our neighbors understand the dynamics uh, mm. of this and are supportive. They understood why people were camping in the parks. And yeah. they understood that it was total necessity. There was literally nowhere else for them to go. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the political will was to move them away because typically the loudest voices uh, against this kind of thing are also powerful and wealthy voices. Yeah, so, absolutely. And those are the ones who make a, a political campaign go. So yeah. um, it's, you know, it's hard to see a way forward and unless we have some pretty significant political change there's yeah. a limit to to what grassroots organizations can accomplish because of often because of taxation legislation so yeah. um, it's it really comes down to that how you're going to tax buildings that are built and we need more yeah. rentals we need more rental spaces for yeah. starters yeah. in sanctuary for sure instead of people buying a condo and then renting it out to try to cover their mortgage so yeah um well, yeah, I was going to say now in the U.S., you, you're, they're seeing reports about these housing building companies that are actually buying up huge percentages of the rental properties because rentals yes. are the skyrocketing rates. Yeah. And so investment companies are, are scooping them up, yeah. um, which is making it harder even still. Yeah. I mean, I, like I said, I mean, I would love, like I said, I know we're, we're probably running out of time here, but I want to ask you two more questions. I think, again, are just I'm trying to ask everybody who I talk to is um, one is um, if you could convince everybody listening about one thing that society gets wrong about our homeless neighbors, like what would, what would you say? Uh, that, well, either, I would either say that um, they are somehow different than you or that they are bad. Hmm. <laughs> and maybe it's the same thing. Yeah, uh, I think there's an awful lot of othering, as they say, that goes on. Mm -hmm. You know, you walk by a homeless guy and you assume that that person is uh, more unlike you than like. And I can mm -hmm. assure you that if you got talking to that individual, you would discover that uh, that there are way more parallels between that person's life and your own than you than you would expect. Yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. And, the last and, and in terms of, if I could just say, in terms of yeah, the please. badness, you know, yeah. that person's there because they're bad somehow. Right? Yeah. Bad is kind of shorthand for a lot of stuff here. But, yeah. but I think if you if you learn that person's story, what you what you learn is that person is as is actually a survivor of uh, tremendous oppression yeah. and affliction, um, and is is actually it's amazing they're they're still surviving and they're doing the best they can. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that. I mean, it's, I, I actually think of sometimes how, you know, those, those, those like shows where they have, they drop someone in the middle of the wilderness with like yeah. a knife and a lighter and they're like, yeah. watch as this person survives for 30 days in the wilderness. I'm like, yeah. man, homeless folks, yeah. like if we, if we treated them with the same yeah. amount of reverence and respect yes. that we treated yeah. these, these yeah. other idiots. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And in many ways, their lives are harder and more dangerous. So exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then the last question I would have for you is um, what is one thing that you would recommend to the average uh, person, the passerby, the businessman, the, you know, the barista, the whatever it have you, who's walking through their day and they see someone in the street who is clearly in need, struggling. 
what what would you recommend that that person do or engage? What are some simple things that you do or that you've seen that other people do that really is has allowed for this connection to take place? Yeah. So I, I would say I would suggest two things. Um, one is is personal. One one is more communal. So on the communal aspect of, of things. I, I would say if you're seeing people and that's starting to do something in your own heart, then get engaged with something like city relief um, or, or sanctuary. Be, be part of a community of people who are trying to engage the folks that are that are reaching your heart. Um, and the other the, the other thing, and maybe the place to start is is simply to stop, face that person, and try to engage them as a human being. Um, it can be as simple and start as simply, you don't want to freak that person out either. So don't, you know, approach them and necessarily and start telling them your life story right away. But, but, but to say hello, to stop, look right at that person right in their eyes and, and simply say hello. And, um, and if the person asks you for five bucks, then, then give it to them. They need it more than you do. And it doesn't matter what they'll spend it on. They still need it more than you do. It's a grace. You know, somehow we have this idea that that um, that if you're going to give money to somebody like that, quote unquote, then you better be sure they're not spending it on drugs. And, and my response to people who raise that question is, you know, did did God ever give you something that you didn't deserve and he knew you would use badly? And and uh, and if you're honest, the answer for all of us is all the time. So, so it's grace, right? So remind yourself, this is an act of grace. You give that to the person. Sometimes it's the currency of relationship also. Yeah. Now you can only give what you can afford both, you know, materially and and emotionally, I would suggest. And that's a lengthy subject, so we won't get into it. But, um, but it's, it's really good to engage that person. And, and eventually if you engage that same person uh, over a period of time, you're going to start to get to know them. And, and as you get to know them, you want to make sure that you are vulnerable. You you yeah. talked about talking to the guy at Port Authority about your own struggles in life. And, yeah. and this is one of the things that relationship requires. If you're not willing to put forward some of your own vulnerability, then you are not engaged in a relationship. You're engaged in something else. Mm-hmm. And um, and it's probably not healthy. So, so bear that in mind. Um, yeah. And maybe that's often the first step is, is to say to somebody, well, you know, I'm not having a great day. And it is, you feel embarrassed, right? Like if you're a wealthy person walking by and you got your suit on and your, and your shoes all buffed up and, and the guy says, how you doing, sir? And, and, and you say, you know, honestly, brother, I'm not having a great day. It's been a rough one for me. That's a good thing to say yeah. to that person. You might not want to say that because you think, well, you know, that person's life is way worse than mine. But it's an expression of vulnerability. So anyway, I'm going on and on. But I think no, you get that's the so good, um, Greg. I just thank you so much. I just want to remind my uh, you know listeners whether there's two of them, or two hundred of them, or two thousand. I don't know how how many there's going to be exactly just yet. But uh, whoever you are, the twenty piece shuffle is uh, my favorite book by Greg Paul. But obviously, God in the Alley is is up there, and there's other ones too. So. Greg, is there a website that people can find you, um, find your your materials? And yeah, honestly, the, probably the simplest thing is to go to Amazon and Google my name, Greg Paul. I think there there might be another Greg Paul out there, but um, there one, one who who's who has a book. Uh, grow, I think grow a pair. I think it's called. That's not me. 
Um, so not the Greg Paul who wrote. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But um, so one of the books that might be helpful for communities, especially uh, Christian communities, churches yeah. that are thinking about this, is called um, "Resurrecting Religion." Uh, it, mm. It's a, it's a relatively newer book, um, and it sort of sank without a trace, unfortunately. But um, but I think it's got a lot of really good practical stuff around understanding theologically where we stand on this. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, some, some practical stuff about, well, then what do we do? Yeah. So uh, probably just going to, to Amazon. It's the easiest way to get the books. Yeah. And, awesome. and you'll, you'll see them all there. Yeah. And I can't recommend them highly enough. Um, thank you for your time. Um, it's been such a great conversation. Again, I feel like you and I could, I just want to talk to you for hours and hours, which is the way all of these conversations are going. I'm like, I have limited time, but I want so badly to just like, like sit down with a beer and just like, yeah, talk yeah, for, for sure. Hours. Well, you know, if you're so, in Toronto some point, uh, give me a heads up and we'll, we'll go have a pint, a pint together. I would love that. Yeah, I'd love that. All right, my friend. Thank you so have much for what you're day. doing, brother. Peace to you. God bless you. Yep. Bye-bye. I am so grateful that you took the time to listen to this episode of the Neighbors with No Doors podcast. I hope you found it helpful and empowering. Just so you know, I'm releasing a book that is also going to be called Neighbors with No Doors, and I would love for you to check it out. You can find it at neighborswithnodoors.com. You can like our Facebook page or follow along on Instagram and Twitter. I'd like to thank my producer, Rex Harson, for helping me put this together, as well as the many guests who gave me the gift of their time and their story. Have a great day. We'll see you next time.